according to his promise. We are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Turn in the word of God this morning to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. We are in the last part of this chapter, looking at verses 35 down to the end of the chapter. 35 through 51, and this will in fact be followed by chapter 2 and on into chapter 3. We're dealing with some of the early events in the early Judean ministry of Jesus Christ that preceded his Galilean ministry, material that is recorded in the Gospel of John but is not recorded in the Synoptic Gospels. It's kind of interesting to just look over your harmony of the Gospels occasionally as we proceed through this study and observe where where we are in the overall gospel record and, and uh, where we are as it pertains to the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, or where we are as it pertains to John, which uh, is uh, separate altogether in the approach that it takes. So we will be in the, uh, the gospel of John for some time here in these upcoming lessons. All right, we're dealing with his first disciples, verses 35 and following. Before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer. Shall we pray? Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the opportunity we have to assemble together this morning and to receive instruction. We rejoice in your faithfulness to guide us in the truth, Father, and we thank you that you are the one who teaches. We claim the promise that your word will not return void, but will accomplish the purpose for which you sent it. And we thank you and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. I broke my little clip again. Dealing with uh, the first disciples, we got as far as how did we? How far did we get last time? Anybody have the point written down? I couldn't hear that. Four B. Okay. Okay. Well, we will deal with some of those. This did follow the forty days of temptation. This does come to the point now in Christ's life where he will be receiving disciples. That is the Father's will for him to do so. He did not crusade and uh, obtain disciples prior to this event. He did not uh, gather disciples to himself uh, apart from the will of the Father. That's the nature of human pride. That's the nature of self-promotion. When people go and they gather disciples for themselves. See, that's the nature of religion. That's the nature of phony teachers. That's the nature of legalism. See, where you try to build followers, where you try to build those that are loyal to you, for example. Christ wasn't about that. Christ was about seeking the Father's will. And uh, there are those that would be in the Father's will to be given to him. And there are those who would not be. And he didn't, uh, he didn't grumble about those the Father did not give. He simply stayed faithful with those whom the Father gave. And it's remarkable, of course, because there will be thousands and thousands that will literally flock to him when he's doing miracles and feeding and doing all of this. But in the end, they start peeling away faster and faster and faster until he's left simply with the twelve, one of whom, in fact, was an unbeliever and was uh, destined to betray him. 
So Jesus Christ will receive disciples according to the will of God the Father. And this is important to keep in mind not only for this study, but in all future studies as it pertains to the life of Christ. John 3.27, John 5.30, very important principles. John the baptizer even declared in John 3.27 that uh, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. So Christ receives the disciples he receives at this point because God the Father has blessed him with them. Likewise, John chapter 5 and verse 30, where Christ denied that this was done on his own initiative. He says, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So he receives these disciples in the will of God the Father, as in everything else that he does. Point three, Jesus' first two disciples come to him from John's ministry. And I'm going to pass over some of these. There we go. They came to him from John's ministry. The, uh, Andrew is specifically named in verse 40, but the other disciple is understood to be the Apostle John under, under subpoint B. We looked at some of the vocabulary on this, and we will deal with more vocabulary here today. But Andrew is specifically named, John 1.40. We don't want to read into the text, but we also want to recognize when the text itself leaves it unspoken. See, very real danger of people who read things into the text. But when the text itself leaves it open, then we understand what has been left unsaid, such as is in the case here. In verse 40, it says, one of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And then it just leaves the rest unsaid. So we're not reading into the text at this point. We are simply recognizing what the text has left unsaid. Are you following the difference there? Because it's very dangerous to read into the text when it's not warranted. It's very dangerous to read into the text indiscriminately whenever we feel like it. We find uh, you know, a passage and we say, well, we'd like to know more here. So we read into the text and we inject our own theology. We inject our own understanding, our own whatever. No, we don't want to read into the text. But we do want to recognize when the text itself leaves things unsaid, such as in this instance here. The other is understood to be the Apostle John, who remains anonymous throughout his gospel. He will never refer to himself by name. In the narrative matters that he does describe that do pertain to him, he will apply a term, such as the disciple whom Jesus loved, or the other disciple. See, uh, Peter's in a foot race to get to the tomb with... (laughs) With somebody, you know, but he's not named because the Apostle John will not name himself, nor does he name his brother. When he has to name the two of them, he simply calls them the the, uh, sons of Zebedee and does not call them by their designated names here in this gospel. It's just a feature of this gospel, a feature of John's writings. So, uh, but we understand who these two are, and the fact that there are two is, is obvious. It's declared that there are two of his disciples in verse 35. And it's also understandable that one of these two is the author that's writing all these things down. You know, who witnessed the events of verses 35 through, um, through 42? Well, these two disciples did. So it is, the author of this text is either one of these two disciples or it's Christ himself. It's someone that was here to observe these events. And so we recognize that, that uh, the Apostle John is the author of this gospel and he was the anonymous uh, disciple here at this event. The Lord questioned these two men as to their motivation. What are you seeking as to their motivation? Very important. 
He tested them as to their motivation. What do you seek? It says in verse 38. The Lord had to be careful. Some point A. Jesus needed to be cautious regarding those who would attach themselves to Him. You've got to have a discernment. Every believer in the church age especially, this is called this present evil age, and believers today more than ever before need to be cautious, need to be walking with our eyes open, need to be on the alert regarding those who would attach themselves to Him. And in an event coming up here shortly over in chapter 2, it says in verse 23, when He was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in His name, observing His signs which He was doing. So here are some believers. And we don't dispute that they're saved because they're believing. But Jesus on His part was not entrusting Himself to them for He knew all men. And because He did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for He Himself knew what was in man. See, He has a caution here. His prophetic gift was enabling Him to look upon their heart and to recognize that their motivations are not, in, are not consistent with the Father's motivations. They would be very quick to surround Him and proclaim Him as King and propel Him forward into some kind of humanly inspired glory when it was the Father's intention to put Him to death. See, uh, Christ already had plenty of, of, of this crowd in Peter. <laughs> you know, He already had plenty of this crowd with Peter saying, you know, far be it from Thee, Lord, this will never happen to You. See, Peter putting his foot down and giving one of those over my dead body kind of kind of uh, vows, you know, saying, I'm not going to let you go to the cross. See, this crowd here would have been a whole collection of Peters that would have all put their foot down and said, oh, we're not going to let this happen. And he knew that, not because he's exercising omniscience, but because he has the prophetic gift, calling, and ministry, and that he, the Lord had blessed him to have discernment with respect, the Father had blessed him to have discernment with respect to those that he was sending him, and he was designated to only receive one devil, and that would be sufficient for the Father's purpose. So Jesus needed to be cautious. We likewise demonstrate cautiousness, caution in the ministry in terms of the local assembly and our protection and membership and all the issues that apply there. And uh, this is where I had the duplicated point, in fact, that I intended to repair by this week and uh, did not do so. So I still have the duplicated main point B, which instead of repeating what it says under main point A... that instead of repeating that Jesus needed to be cautious, is supposed to be a principle that says we need to be cautious. And we're going to put scriptures in there, including Matthew, that says be shrewd as a serpent, yet harmless as a dove. We're going to put scriptures in there that will warn us to be on the alert. You know, God has a reason for warning us to be on the alert. It's because we need to be on the alert. See, does that make sense? God would never warn us to do something if it was not required or necessary for us to do. And when he says be on the alert, uh, he means be on the alert. Uh, so we are going to include Matthew in this. We're going to include Acts chapter 20 in this. And let me go ahead and give you the scriptures now because I don't anticipate uh, that I actually will come back to repair this slideshow and, and teach it again in an upcoming lesson. So let's get the... Uh, Let's get the uh, the passages down now. All right. 
Shrewd as serpents, eat harmless as doves. Anybody know where it is? Matthew 10, 24, 10, 15, 10, 16. There we go. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves, but beware of men. If you're placing your trust in man, you're setting yourself up for disappointment. See, our trust is in the Lord. Men will let you down, even good men. Trust in the Lord. See, do you trust your pastor? Well, I hope so. But don't place your trust in your pastor because your pastor will let you down. See, trust in men. Uh, don't trust in men, trust in the Lord. All right. So I give you Matthew 10:16 for that point of study. Again, at subpoint B, we need to be cautious as well. I would also give you Acts chapter 20. And the warning that Paul gave to the elders in verse 28. Acts chapter 20 and verse 28. Where he says, be on guard for yourselves. He's talking to a group of elders here. Previously in the chapter, it says that they gathered all the elders. Verse 17, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And this goes into studies on elders and pastors and overseers and a lot that we deal with in ecclesiology as it pertains to the administration of the church and what the church polity is to be. But this is, he's addressing a group of elders. And yet he tells them in verse 28, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So you recognize that elders are overseers, from verse 17 to verse 28. And the function of elders and overseers is to shepherd. That's why it's called a flock. So be on guard for yourselves and all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd, that's pastor, the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. See, the greatest nature of being on the alert is to be on the alert right here. Be on the alert in the local assembly. Because the wolves will slip in and they won't look like wolves. They're going to look like sheep. <laughs> All right. So just as Christ needed to exercise caution, we need to exercise caution. All right. Main point five. Andrew and John gave an answer that indicated their positive volition. Andrew and John gave an answer that indicated their positive volition. And this is the second part of verse 38. See, his question, what are you seeking? Their answer indicated their positive volition. They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? They're positive to this one that, that their previous teacher had revealed to them as the Christ. Remember, they were students of John the Baptist. Verse 35 says, with two of his disciples, that is students, uh, learners, Mathetes um, um, is a learner, somebody who Montano learns. 
All right. It's not simply a follower. They're not following a personality. They are learners. They are they are learning under the the activity of Montano because the Baptist is not just a leader. He is a teacher under the activity of Didasco to teach. So they have learned from his teaching that this one they are looking at is the Christ. See, but they're noble minded like the Bereans. And they're not just taking uh, teaching at because so-and-so said so. If you're clinging to something because so-and-so said such and such, it's pathetic. Search the Scriptures diligently. See if these things are so. Examine. Maybe the teacher is wrong. Maybe he's intentionally wrong as a false teacher, a wolf in sheep's clothing. Maybe he's unintentionally wrong as just simply a, a fallible human being that makes mistakes. So search it out. See if these things are so. All right. They have positive volition. First of all, they address him as teacher. They call him rabbi. They address him as teacher. Remember, they are students. They're accustomed to calling John rabbi, which we get a, a, just a clue on it over in chapter 3 and verse 26. Some of John's disciples, and they came to John and said to him, Rabbi. Okay, John 3.26 is the only use of the address rabbi as it pertains to somebody other than Christ and it pertains to John the Baptist in, uh, in that context. But they were students of John the Baptist and they called him rabbi. We'll do a little bit of work on that title here at this time. But this is also how they address Jesus Christ as rabbi, as teacher. They were told that he was the Christ the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, but they also recognize that He is a teacher, and they are positive to teaching. So they addressed Him as teacher. I'm going to also give you under point B that they desire more time to investigate His credentials. They ask, where are you staying? But for the first aspect of their positive volition, let's deal with His title as teacher. Subpoint one. The term is rabbi. In the Greek, R or R H A B B I. There is a rough breather over the row, and so sometimes in transliteration that will be that will be reflected. R A B B I, number forty-four sixty-one. Strictly speaking, it's not even a Greek word. It is a, it is a Greek word, but it is borrowed from the Hebrew of Hebrew origin. The Hebrew term is rab. And I'll give this up here. Let's see. Don't, don't do that. There's the R and the A and there's the B. In the Hebrew, the word is rab. R-A-B. Number 7227. And properly speaking, it refer, doesn't refer to a teacher at all, although it came to be used as such. Uh, the term rab is properly a term for a master or for a lord. That's simply a rab all throughout the Old Testament. When you add the prefix i y or the suffix i y on the end of it, there, that little dot is your i, and that little yod there is your y. Then you're adding the my. A rab is a lord, but rabbi is my lord. Okay, my lord. Properly a form of address, and we can get very 
medieval here this morning and we can address one another as my lord or my lady and we can get very formal in our uh, in our address the the vocative address of of sovereignty i hope we don't <laughs> all right that's the last thing i need is for church members to start addressing pastor as my lord all right but it would follow the lexical definition of teacher or rabbi which is simply my lord properly a form of address and so throughout our literature then an honorary title for outstanding teachers of the law and so it is rendered master or sir or simply not translated but left as a title rabbi all right it's by this point of time now in the 21st century it is so become used as a title that the original sense of my Lord and the original sense of master, recognizing that someone who is a master of scripture, someone who is a teacher of the law, would be considered a spiritual master who could then instruct a spiritual apprentice. See, and now it's just simply a title. We call it rabbi. I don't even consider the original concept that he is a teacher. He is a master teacher uh, qualified to instruct apprentices. It's, it's also remarkable that the title became coveted. And if you'll join me over in Matthew chapter 23, Matthew chapter 23, hopefully we can gain the sense of this and we can apply the scripture appropriately. Matthew 23, verses 7 and 8. And this is, this is in the midst of a large context. Don't just simply take Verse 8 that says, do not be called rabbi for one is your teacher and you're all brothers. Don't take that verse as an isolated little island and ignore the full context in which Matthew 23 is presenting. All right. This passage is a total rebuke over, over, over Phariseeism. See, Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples. <laughs> Fascinating how you can have multiple audiences in the same setting. He's addressing the multitudes but he's also particularly addressing the disciples. And the multitudes may get one thing out of it, but his disciples are going to get something else altogether. Saying, the scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Notice they've seated themselves. We understand that no man takes honor unto himself, but he receives it when God the Father grants the honor. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe. But do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. In other words, they're hypocrites. They'll say one thing, but they themselves don't do it. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. You know, if the preacher's preaching a message, you better be living it. You know, he can't, he can't wag his finger and say, you need to be in prayer meeting, and then he skips prayer meeting. See? Or say, you need to be in Bible class, and he skips Bible class. <laughs> you know, how does a pastor skip Bible class anyway? I, don't, I can't figure that out. You know, I guess other believers can. If they don't feel like going to church, skip church. Why not? So, the pastor didn't really have that option. I guess if he's in a bad mood, what does he do? Just, well, I don't feel like going. <laughs> All right? So, if he's preaching it, he better be living it. And these Pharisees weren't. They were hypocrites. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men. See, they're too busy trying to put on a show so they can be observed and appreciated. For they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. They love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogue. See, they're living 
for the parking pass at the, at the hospital. <laughs> right? I get to park in clergy parking. Wow. So I get to park up front near the doors. And when everybody else has to leave and pay their $3 or whatever to pay for the parking garage, I just hand them my parking pass and they mark it off. And I get to go out free of charge. Isn't that great? Love being a pastor. Don't have to pay for parking at the hospital. See? Well, you know, that's a courtesy. They extend that. I'm thankful for it. You know, and you do 30 hospital visits a year and the the, part, the garage fees would start adding up over time. But uh, <laughs> pastor's not doing it so he can get free parking at the, at the hospital. Right? It's not why he became a pastor. The place of honor at banquets. Chief seats in the synagogues. See, yeah, let me think of some other honors that can be bestowed. I think the pastor ought to have season tickets to the Round Rock Express. I mean, obviously, the, the position is worthy of such honor. And the respectful greeting in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. See, it's the approbation that they lust. As Pastor Theme taught, the human approbation lust. They love the title. You know why they love it? Because they've earned it. They've worked for it. And others that have not worked as hard or not smart enough or haven't done the homework, they've not yet earned the title rabbi. See? So it's a matter of pride, of legalism and what I've earned and deserved and what I've merited. The title rabbi is an achievement. So when he says, do not be called rabbi, he's saying, do not crave after the approbation of a title. Show some humility here, because are you a teacher? Well, you've got a teacher too, and that's Jesus Christ. See, nothing wrong with calling your pastor pastor, or identifying a teacher as such. There's other scriptures that would pertain to this. It's interesting too, and then goes on to say, do not call anyone on earth your father. You know, I wonder what the, I mean, the Catholics, what do they deal with that, you know? <laughs> They've got father so-and-so and this and that. And they've put themselves in an exalted position with clergy over laity and all of the things there. Scripture gives us the accurate position on spiritual fathers. You know who a spiritual father is? Somebody that's led somebody to Christ. And that's what spiritual fatherhood is all about. And you've got a responsibility to nurture that new believer in the Lord and, and uh, disciple him and all the rest. Point two, sub-point two, again, this is vocabulary for teacher. The Greek term is didaskalos. Number 1320, didaskalos. And here, remember, John is writing decades after the event. John is an old man writing back 40 years, 50 years after the events all occurred. Writing to an audience that may not necessarily be familiar with the Hebrew terms. And so quite often in the Gospel of John, we find a lot of the Hebraic terms that are being translated into Greek. As the disciples called him rabbi, which translated means teacher, didaskalos. They're not wrapped up in him being a rabbi in terms of his glory or greatness or master or, or the, the, the accolades of the title. But they are addressing him as rabbi because they are humble before him as their teacher. They recognize that he is one who can teach them. And this will happen more and more and more throughout the gospel record as Jesus Christ teaches the Bible and folks are going to be stunned. They're going to be amazed. They say, we never heard anything like this before. This man teaches with authority. 
This man teaches not like the Pharisees and Sadducees. I mean, they're experts. They've got knowledge, but he teaches with authority. And uh, no one will dispute his knowledge, but they will recognize that he's got something different. And they will be stunned at his teaching ability. So we will come across that concept here repeatedly. But didaskalos is a teacher, number 1320. The verb didasko means to teach, to instruct, to impart information from one to another. And they recognize that they can learn from the Christ and that they should learn from the Christ. You know, it's, it's interesting the, what people expected the Christ to do. Some expected Christ to throw off the bonds of Rome and to conquer the world and to rule in everlasting righteousness. Okay? And that's a legitimate expectation because he will indeed do all that in second advent. And, and it's legitimate that they would expect him to do that. And so when we find Judas Iscariot and we find Simon the Zealot and we find others that are anxious you know, for the kingdom to be brought in, you know, that's natural because they expected the Christ would do that. Others also, though, expected the Christ would be crucified. They had expectations that the Christ would bear the sins of the many and go to the cross because the scriptures spoke of that. The idea of the Christ being a teacher, though, is really remarkable. And that's what their expectation was, because the Scripture spoke of that. And so it's interesting how even uh, the aspect of the disciples here willing to leave John the Baptist, who was no doubt a remarkable teacher, he was spirit-filled. He was a prophet. They haven't had too many of them since Malachi. I met, and, he was the, and Christ said he was the greatest of those born among women. So I expect that Andrew and John and, and whatever other disciples that were disciples of the Baptist had some outstanding Bible teaching. And that's what they're oriented to. And so that's what they're attracted to. And so they call him teacher. It is an expression of their positive volition. He calls them, and they call him teacher. Now secondly, sub point B now, they desire more time to investigate his credentials. He asks them what they seek, and they say, we need more time. <laughs> Where are you staying? They desired more time to investigate his credentials. Their answer is not going to be just a real short answer. You can answer it and move on. We need to spend time with you. We have more questions. We want to learn more things. And they desired more time to investigate his credentials. It's interesting, when they, when they go running out to find others, Andrew's going to go find Peter, John's going to go find James, uh, they're going to bring uh, Philip and Nathaniel into here. And it's interesting because the language communicates what they've been searching for. All right, When you, when you look at verse uh, 41, Andrew found uh, Peter, Simon. And said to him, we have found the Messiah. Found, meaning we've been searching, we've been investigating, and we found him. We're convinced this is it. We've done the investigation. Likewise, Philip found Nathaniel in verse 45. We have found him of whom Moses and the law wrote. Ah, They were investigating Christ's claims based upon Moses and the law. Based upon the word of God. They didn't just... Take it because he claimed to be the Christ. They didn't just take it because John the Baptist said he was the Christ. But Moses in the law described the coming Christ and they held up Christ to that standard of Scripture. They were noble-minded like the Bereans. Search the Scriptures diligently. See if these things are so. We have found him of whom Moses in the law uh, and also the prophets wrote. So they took the law. They took the prophets. 
In other words, they took their Old Testament, which was, in their generation, all the Bible there was. Genesis to Malachi was the Bible. And they looked at the law, and they looked at the prophets. That's a term for the whole of the Old Testament, or the Bible, of their day. So they desire more time to investigate his credentials. Again, this is positive volition on their part. Where are you staying? Point six. Andrew and John spent the remainder of that day with Jesus and became convinced of his being the Christ. Andrew and John spent the remainder of that day with Jesus and became convinced of his being the Christ. John 1, 39 and 41. They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw. Gracious, gracious invitation. Invitations always are offered by grace to be either freely received or freely rejected. He said, come and you will see. They came and they saw. In fact, it says, uh, so they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. Measuring by Roman time, that we'd equate that to about ten o'clock in the morning, and they stayed there that whole day. And they became convinced. It's clear. When they go in verse 41, Andrew goes to find Simon. They were convinced. They were convinced. Now, we don't know the relative ages. We suspect Peter to be one of the oldest of the disciples, Andrew being his brother then, we don't really have a, we know he's younger than Peter, we don't have a, an estimate on his age. John, though, we understand to be the youngest of the disciples, possibly as young as 14, 12, 14, 16, how old? See, we, we don't presume him to be a boy, he wouldn't have been under 13, so let's just say 14 minimum, 16. Whatever the event, this is, uh, you know, 29 A.D., 30 A.D. we're talking about, and he's going to live another 70 years after this event. So, um, how old uh, how old would John be in this in this event? But they become convinced. Now, convinced that he is the Christ. He was called the Lamb of God in verse 36. He was called the Son of God in verse 34. He is called the Christ. All right? And they recognize that he is the Christ. I hope you can see the progression of it here in this chapter. When John the Baptist declared the Christ, he said in verse 29, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That in verse 30, that he existed before me. That in uh, uh, verse 33, that he is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. And in verse 34, that he is the Son of God. Again in verse 36, behold, the Lamb of God. So all of these terms were given by John the Baptist, and his students understood that all of these terms pertain to the Christ. And the first ones to use the term are right here, these disciples, Andrew and John. He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. All right? Vocabulary. Some point A, Messiah. 
In the Greek, it looks like this, Messias, M-E-S-S-I-A-S, number 3323, M-E-S-S-I-A-S, that's Mu, Epsilon, Sigma, Sigma, Iota, Alpha, Sigma, Messias, number 3323, which is not a Greek word. It is a Hebrew word transliterated over into Greek letters of Hebrew origin. We have so many of these in English. I hope you're, this doesn't bother you at all. Any? We have. I mean, think about how many Spanish words have been brought over into English, and we don't even think of them. We use them all the time, but strictly speaking, they're not English words, are they? They're Spanish words that have been adopted and have come into common English use, but they are. Strictly speaking, not even English words. Such is the case with Messias. It was brought over into the Greek. It's used in common Greek usage, but it's not a Greek word. It's a Hebrew word. Number 3323 of Hebrew origin. The Hebrew is Mashiach, which you see here. This is your M. This is your SH. This is your... Y and your CH as we transliterate Mashiach in the Hebrew. 4899 Mashiach comes across as Messias in the Greek. And it means the anointed one. That's what the Christ is all about. The anointed one. The verb Mashiach means to smear, to anoint. Okay, you are taking oil and you are anointing, as in the case of a prophet, a priest, a king, a temple. Any item that's holy is anointed. See, he is the anointed one, anointed by God the Father in a unique way. The only anointed one to accomplish what the Christ could accomplish. Now, you and I have an anointing, but we and we are anointed ones, but we cannot say that we are the anointed one because that is Christ and Christ alone. We have found the anointed one, the unique, the only, uh, the only begotten or the one of a kind, the unique celebrity of the universe, the anointed one, the Messiah. I hope we can keep clear the distinction between function and being. Because the function of Messiah has lots of different functions. The Messiah was going to die. The Messiah was going to save. The Messiah was going to conquer. The Messiah was going to teach. The Messiah was going to govern. There, was a, there were a lot of expectations with respect to the function of Messiah. But the being of Messiah is unique, and that is Christ himself. All right, the Greek term, Christ Christos. So we use these terms in English, Messiah. Well, it's not an English word, that's a Hebrew word, Messiah. It's just brought over from, when Mashiach was brought over into Greek, it was brought over as Messias. When Mashiach was brought over into English, it comes across as Messiah. So when I say the word Messiah, I'm not using an English word, I'm using a Hebrew word. Likewise, when I say the word Christ, I'm not using an English word. I'm just using a Greek word brought over into English. The Greek word is Christos. C-H-R-I-S-T-O-S. Christos. Alright, there I go again. Let's do this. The chi is the C-H. Rho is R-I-S-T-O-S. Christos. Number 5547. Again, it means the exact same thing that Mashiach means. 
because creo is the verb to smear or to anoint. Just like mashach is the verb to smear or to anoint. Since mashach means to smear, then a mashiach is someone who's been smeared, he's been anointed, he is an anointed one. Likewise in the Greek, creo means to smear or to anoint. So a Christos is someone who's been smeared, who's been anointed. So Messiah is a Hebrew word, we use it all the time. Christ is a Greek word, we use it all the time. They've come into common English usage, but have we forgotten the meaning behind it? The meaning is that he has been anointed. That God the Father has anointed one being in the, in the universe to accomplish his plan and program for the ages. And that one anointed being to accomplish the will of the Father is Jesus Christ. The one anointed being. And he will accomplish the Father's good purpose as a prophet, as a priest, as a king, as a redeemer, as a creator, as a ruler. Everything Christ has ever done, everything Christ is doing now, everything Christ ever will do is all with the anointing of God the Father to accomplish the Father's purpose. Christ, we have found the anointed one. We have found the center of God the Father's plan and program. The Christ. That's what it means when we say the Christ. And Andrew and John are convinced of this. Point seven. Each went to find their brother. Again, only one is specifically named, but both are understood. He found first, or he first found his own brother Simon. You've got to deal with what that first is all about there in verse 41. Because we have, again, a place where it's gone without saying, it's left unsaid. We're not reading into the text but we are identifying what is left unsaid. So under point seven, each went to find their brother. John 1.41, Andrew's finding of Peter is mentioned, but John's finding of James is only inferred. It has been left unsaid. Just as verse 40 left unsaid who the second disciple was. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Verse ends there. <laughs> you know, it's like, give me a pen. Let me write in something else here in verse 40. Who was the other one? Okay, well, it was left unsaid. Likewise, in verse 41, he found first his own brother Simon. That word first in there. So what's left unsaid? Well, one of two things. Either he found first and then he went and found somebody else, in which case Andrew has found two people and only one of which is stated here, or he found first his own brother, and John also found his brother being left unsaid. And that's how we understand it here. And all of the disciples, Andrew, Peter, James, and John, were the four that were closest to Jesus Christ. All right? If I am permitted one side trip per hour, then join me over in Matthew chapter 10. You can find this list in Matthew, you can find it in Luke, you can find it in Acts, but Matthew 10 is the easiest for me to find. I always forget where the Luke was Luke 9 or Luke 4. I, I can never remember where the listing of the 12 is in Luke, but I can always find Matthew 10. The names of the 12 apostles are these. The first Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, the son of Zebedee, 
and John, his brother. All right, there's the, the first four. And every time you have the four, the twelve apostles mentioned, as I say, they're mentioned in Matthew, they're mentioned in Luke, they're mentioned in Acts. Anytime you have a listing of the twelve, these four are always listed first. All right, let's spell it out. Have I done this for you already? Has it been a while? So, here's your homework. Go to Matthew 10, go to Luke, go to Acts, all right, and just list the 12. Nine, ten, eleven, twelve. There you go. And make yourself a list. Just take a piece of scratch paper and have fun. Do the same thing with Luke, number them one to twelve. Do the same thing with Acts, number them one to twelve. In the Acts, though, you only get eleven because by then Judas Iscariot is gone, but you still have a list. Okay? And I'll even give you the passages here. Okay, Mark three sixteen through nineteen. Oh, there is a Mark reference. Mark three sixteen through nineteen. Luke six fourteen through sixteen. And Acts one. Okay, so you're gonna have four columns. So uh, squeeze a Mark column in there. Mark chapter three verses sixteen through nineteen. Luke chapter 6 and Acts chapter 1. And make your lists from 1 to 12. And here's what you will find. You will find that every list is going to begin with Peter. Every list begins with Peter. And then numbers 2, 3, and 4 are going to be in some order, not always the same, in some order, number two, three, and four are going to be Andrew, James, and John. Not always in the same order. Some, some it'll be, um, it'll be Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, or Peter, Andrew, James, and John. But Peter will always be first. And then those other three. And these will always, always, always be the first four out of the twelve. Alright? Then what do we find? Reading from Matthew 10 and verse 3. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon, the zealot and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. Alright, there's the list of the twelve. Alright. You will also find that the fifth mentioned disciple in every list is Philip. And that is true. He's number five in Mark's list. He's number five in Luke's list. He's number five in Acts. Is Philip. His friends called him Phil. All right. <laughs> number six, seven, and eight will be in a variety of orders, but they will include Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew. Bartholomew, Bart to his friends, Doubting Thomas, and Matthew the tax collector. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew. They will come 
in a variety of orders, but they will always be the sixth, seventh, and eighth disciples listed. You will have to do some work on Bartholomew, who does have some different names. All right. In fact, we're going to see him here in John chapter 1, where he's called Nathaniel. Okay? Then, we have Simon, let's see, uh, James, the son of Alphaeus, sometimes called James the Less, and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot. All right? You will note that Judas is always listed last on every list. He's not mentioned there because he's dead. Um, but you will also notice in this third grouping of four that the leader of which is James the Less. James the son of Alphaeus. The others are listed in a variety of orders. But numbers 10, 11, and 12 will be Simon the Zealot, um, Thaddeus, so you get Thad, Simon, and Judas. Judas is always listed last, but numbers 10, 11, and 12. Anyway, that's the pattern. That's what you're going to observe when you do your homework. And do it for yourself. Look it over. And you'll spot that, yes, he had 12 disciples, but they were, in some cases, sent out two by two. And we find their pairings. Uh, sometimes they were grouped by four. And uh, in these four, Peter, Andrew, James, and John were his closest. The ones that he took to the Transfiguration, for example, were Peter, James, and John. And the one that he went to pray, for, pray with were Peter, James, and John. Sometimes Andrew is the fourth wheel. Sometimes Andrew is left out. But in any event, there is no dispute that these four were the closest, the ones mentioned the most, the ones that most frequently were closest to Christ. So, there's a little bit of homework. You can have fun with that. Draw up your lists and uh, enjoy. I meant to blank that out. Oh, well. All right. Were you able to see when I was drawing on the... Okay. Each went to find their brother. And I do believe that uh, Andrew, he found first his own brother Simon. That's gone said. And I believe that John went to go find James. That has been left unsaid. All right. Not everyone agrees to that. You can decide you want to do something else with the word first. Um... But you've got to figure out what to do with first because nothing is stated as far as what he did second. If he did indeed do something second or if the other apostle did something second. And that is uh, much more natural to the context. He found first his brother Peter, which we'll see here in a moment. But John's finding of James is only inferred. Here's your vocabulary for James. James in the Greek is Jacobas, which is the name Jacob, number 2385. This is one of the things that has bugged me for decades. Well, okay, I've only lived three decades. Uh, it's bugged me for a couple of decades anyway. Why is Jacob the Old Testament name and James the New Testament name? What's wrong with Jacob? 
<laughs> Why don't we call it Peter, Andrew, Jacob, and John? Well, we don't. <laughs> we don't. It really is the same name, uh, just through the years. It, uh, as, as, uh, the Hebrew Yaakov went into Greek as Yakobos, which went into Latin as, uh, Jacobus or Jacobus, which came into the old French and the old English. It ended up going into French as Jacques and it ended up going into English as James. And, uh, it's kind of a, Interesting study as as it goes. Um, I think those were the forms with a B or an M in the Latin. These became variant spellings, and so when it when Latin came down into French, it came in as Jacques, and when uh, Latin came into English, the names became known as James. It's the same name. Just over time, the spelling has morphed. But it still bugs me to death that in the Old Testament we read about Jacob all the time. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know, Jacob and his wives, Jacob and his sons. We, got the whole, we did a whole life of Jacob study, which I guess I could have called the whole life of James study. But in the Old Testament, it's referred to as Jacob. In the New Testament, the name is referred to as James, even though when you read it in the Greek, it is Jacobas. Jacobas. And that's true for the Apostle, that's true for the Brother of Christ, that's true for the Book of James. The Book of James, you know, you have Hebrew, James, and it's the Book of Jacob, the Book of Jacobas. Point eight Andrew's brother Simon is supplied a new name by Jesus Christ. Andrew's brother Simon has supplied a new name by Jesus Christ. So Andrew went to get Simon. John went to get Jacob. (laughs) And we've called him James. It is a myth, by the way, that that was intentionally done by the King James translators to honor King James. There's a little bit of urban legend that says that, you know, that they used the name James in the New Testament instead of Jacob to honor King James, who had authorized them to translate the Bible. That is a myth. The, uh, the, the chain of transition from Jacobus to James was long established many, many years prior to 1611. All right. But we have a new name here. Remarkably. Um, now there are other disciples, as I mentioned, Bartholomew is one, Thaddeus is another, there's, uh, James the Less even. There are disciples who have who are known by other names but that is by virtue of of their own name by virtue of their own background by virtue of their own family not as opposed to Jesus Christ personally giving them that name Peter is given his name by Jesus Christ he was called Simon he was called Barjona or son of John um as a as a first name a given name and a surname but this received name to be given the name of Peter is extraordinary. It's like Jacob being given the name of Israel. It is it is the sovereignty of God who has designated a person to be the object of his grace, to be the uh, servant of his purpose. And Peter will be the leader of these disciples, and he is given this name. So Simon has supplied a new name. Simon, by the way, is 
perfectly normal. It's one of the most common names in the New Testament, uh, one of the most common names in, uh, in uh, uh, Jewish history of this day. There are tons of Simons out there. Uh, the, named after the tribe of Simeon, for example. The name Simeon in the Old Testament, the son of Jacob was Simeon, uh, is where Simon comes from. And it's, uh, it is possibly the most common given name of, of that generation. Let's get to a little bit more vocabulary and we'll dismiss you for the day. First of all, Christ gives him the name Cephas. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas. He gives him an Aramaic name. He calls him Rock. You shall be called Cephas. Number 2786, the uh, word of Aramaic origin. In the Greek, it's Kephas. In the Greek, it's Kepha. Kephas is not a Greek name. It is a Aramaic term simply brought across. That's what it looks like in the Greek. That's what it looks like in the Hebrew. Kephas or Kepha. 2786 is the Greek Strong's number. 3710 is the Hebrew Strong's number, meaning either rock or stone. Like the stone of stumbling, the rock of offense. Okay. Peter's going to be named Rock. Simon, I'm sorry, is going to be named Rock, which is translated Peter. Point B, Peter. Petros, 4074. 4074. Petros is the Greek word for rock or stone. So Jesus took Simon, renamed him Cephas, or Kephas, but the Greek term for kephos is Petros, and that's why today we call him Peter, or Simon Peter. Petros number 4074 is rock. And we're going to deal with this more extensively at the Great Confession. We're going to deal with this more extensively when Jesus says, "Thou," uh, when Peter says, Thou art the Christ, Son of the living God, and Christ says, Right you are, and he says, And upon this rock, and you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. And we're going to differentiate between Peter the rock and Christ the rock and show you the difference there and how the church is built upon the confession of Jesus Christ and is not built upon the person of Peter, who, uh, contrary to the Roman tradition, was not the first pope, and all the other things that happened there. Two last issues to deal with, and I really thought we'd get through it. Um, under point nine, we're going to get two more disciples. Jesus will gather two more disciples prior to departing from Galilee. Uh, Philip, the lover of horses, and Nathaniel, the gift of God. And then we'll deal with Nathaniel's response under point 10 when he snorts and says, how can anything good come out of Nazareth? All right, so we will deal with, uh, with this under points 9 and 10 and spend the first part of next time. I thought we'd get through it this hour. We'll spend uh, the first part of next week going through that. Lord willing, rapture pending, and then we'll move on into uh, the events here that follow. Do we have any questions? Anything on your mind? Anything not clear? Anything fuzzy? Anything that was explained just horribly? And you just shocked and said, man, wish we had a better pastor could have explained that better. Anything at all? All right, if something comes up, you can save it for another. Oh, there we go. Every single one of them is a Jewish man. Yeah. 
And most of them are Galilean. Um, Iscariot, the village of, of Iscariot, is usually thought to be a Judean uh, village, but there, most of these are not only Jewish, but they are Galileans. And, uh, but they are all Jewish men. Yep. Interestingly enough, though, we don't know their some of them we have Greek names for, like Andrew's a Greek name, Philip's a Greek name, Philippos is a Greek name, and if they had a uh, Hebrew given name, Scripture doesn't record what they were. See, and so it's kind of interesting how a parent would give a Greek name to a son, a Jewish parent would give a a Greek name to a son. Well, they're living in a Greek world, they're living in a Roman world, and so they may not have had actually Jewish given names. So, you know. It, Kind of interesting. Jewish folks today want to give, you know, Jewish parents want to give Jewish names to their sons, but you know, what if they choose not to? You know, what if they just choose to name their son Bob or name him, you know, Gary or something? You know, <laughs> you know, that's not a Hebrew name. Well, no, it's not. But we're living in an American culture, and name my son Bob. You know, well, in any event, whatever was going through. Uh, Andrew's parents, when they named him Andrew, and whatever was going through Philip's parents' mind when they named him Philip, lover of horses. How do they know? Do they know he was going to love horses? <laughs> he was just a little kid. What did he? You know, he didn't love horses. He was just born. Oftentimes, too, they're named after family members or kings or other folks. Anyway, that's something else. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for these disciples and. Father, as we learn from the life of Christ, we're also going to learn from the life of these disciples, and some of which were very um, thick-headed and uh, putting their foot in their mouth and, and not thinking before they do something. And, and Father, that's good because we realize that that's how we are a lot of times. And and uh, you never, you never, uh, your plan's not thwarted because uh, you use imperfect people. Uh, you have a perfect plan, and you bring about perfect results in spite of the imperfect people that you use. And Father, I just so rejoice in the way that your sovereignty is manifest at the same time you uh, permit us our free will and our volition. And Father, just amazing things in all the ways that you do. Thank you for your word. Thank you for believers committed to teaching. I pray that you would take hold of this message, use it as a source of encouragement, challenge, and blessing. And we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.